0: when you work in nightclubs for you know 40 years and you never see the sun yeah you develop a certain kind of skin right you get
1: long Cheney disease Yes. if it wasn't
0: for playing golf and going fishing I, I i don't know if i have any color in my skin at all i'd be like a vampire
1: yeah man which my no.
0: daughter thought i was when she was growing up dad only comes out at night yeah well
1: that's when dad comes up with all the ideas it's, you know i know that i for still me.
0: prefer the night
1: yeah uh, I think I, I'm the same way but I can't stay up past 10:30 anymore. I just fall asleep. I'm just I'm, a, an old Jew. I'm, an, <laughs> I'm just I'm just a night owl. That's that's my
0: that's my natural habitat. Somebody asked me and said, "Why do you like that?" I said because uh, as a writer, we like when everyone else is asleep because all their minds are shut down. Yeah. They said, what you could I said trust me yeah I bet you could figure this out physically and scientifically when all in a town like this you have 14 million people and when at least 12 million of them, maybe 13 are asleep yeah the mental field is oh, completely boy. different in the middle <laughs> of the night yeah and it's more wide open and that's when I can do my work
1: you know it's interesting did you spend now during throughout your career did, was the bulk of your early career in LA or was or did you go did you split time? Because I, I know there's a country component. I know you spent time in Nashville, yes. and I know.
0: Well, the way it works for me career-wise was uh, I was born in Iowa City, Iowa. Oh, okay. uh, And uh, really grew up for the first few years of my life on the Mississippi River in a little town called Fort Madison. Fort Madison is where the. My uncle owns a deli in Fort Madison. No, okay, <laughs> yeah. no, he doesn't. Yeah. I wish he did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> make it better when I go to visit. But they got they have some veal cutlets. That's Ooh. all I can tell you. And the corn is amazing.
1: That's good with me.
0: Too. That's where the um, Santa Fe Railway crosses the Mississippi River, oh, wow. which is now the Amtrak.
1: Great, yeah, okay. It's already. I'm already writing tunes. That already seems romanticized and, you know, before, very American.
0: Before Route 66, yeah, from Chicago to L.A., there was the railroad. And yeah. the railroad went through Fort Madison. And Route 66 is, uh, for the first part, coming out of Chicago and down through Illinois uh, until it crosses the river. It, was, it kind of followed the railroad, but not too closely. But right. as soon as it got down into Kansas and whatnot, the railroad and Route 66 followed each other exactly. Oh, okay. So... When I was about four or five in the early 50s, uh, my dad got a job in Albuquerque, which was further down Route 66. And we moved there, but we spent every summer in Iowa. And uh, then when I was, like right after Kennedy was assassinated, just a couple of months, my dad got a job in Dallas. Oh, if you could imagine wow. moving to Dallas yeah. right after the assassination. About
1: heavy mental vibe. Well, and
0: all the kids were still like, yeah, they killed that guy. That oh, was great, you know. Ooh. Oh, yeah, I moved into the real white world, which Ooh. I'd never really experienced because my mother's family's from Lebanon, and my dad's family are real Celtic, Scottish, Irish, Welsh. So it's uh, real immigrants. Very much close to my immigrant roots. Even though my dad's family goes back to before the Revolutionary War, right. and we had... Uh, the names of all the people who served in every war of the United States. Oh and wow! Going back, my grandma was a daughter of the American Republic and all of that.
1: Oh right, right. D A R. the American Revolution. Yes,
0: yes. And so uh, we we had all all that American history, immigrant history. We were the people that built America history and all of that stuff. Mm. Um, and we went to Albuquerque and then we went to Dallas. And Dallas was a real eye opener. It was so racist. It was so homophobic. <laughs> it stayed white out later. <laughs> it was so anti-Semitic. It was so, wow. It yeah. was just like, how white can you get? Mm. Uh, but it also had another thing. It had a strain of music because by this point in time, I'd gotten a lot of uh, Celtic music. I'd gotten a lot of Mideastern music. And I got a lot of Mexican music. Yeah. Because living in Albuquerque for 10 years, it was just Mexican, Mexican, Mexican. and it so culturally now i had those things going but when i got to texas what i got was hardcore blues and country sure Yeah. and from really old white guys who didn't play like they did in nashville no they played a, a strain of country that was more like appalachian oh okay more like a hillbilly strain these kind of i mean they weren't the white folks who were running around causing trouble. They're like the guys who are with the Indians on the mall in D.C. right now. Right. They're, okay. real, they're real people of the land. Right. Real people, farmer, ranchers who they didn't want to mess in your business politically. Right. But musically, they brought music from mm. the old country too. Yeah. So, um, and then there was the blues. I'd right. never really been in a place that had the blues like Texas. Yeah. And it was just amazing. And so for me as an education, as a music person, uh, I was just starting to come into my own on guitar. I first started on clarinet when I was 8, and then I went to guitar when I was 10. And um, I started being in bands, first folk trios, then rock and roll bands. Started getting paid as a musician. Now I'm in my teen years, and I'm actually semi-pro. Yeah. By the time I was 15, I I was playing in strip clubs. It was it was great perfect there was a great entry into the the real business that you could do in those days that you can't do today no that doesn't exist on any level no we go see old cats play you know um and then the psychedelic thing from san francisco which was going really big in san francisco by the mid-60s started to creep into texas by the time i went to ut university of texas in in austin Austin. in 68 uh They had the Vulcan Gas Company, which was their own auditorium, ballroom place. And all the bands from San Francisco would come. All the bands from New York would come. I saw the Fugs. I saw all these amazing acts come through there. And we had our own psychedelic acts the 13-floor elevators and uh, uh, Bubble Puppy from San Antonio and and, uh, the Moving Sidewalks, which the American Blues Band Moving Sidewalks joined together and became ZZ Top.
1: Oh yeah! You see, I saw all these guys in the yeah, beginning. In years.
0: But we also had, and the Vaughn brothers were friends of mine from South Oak Cliff in Dallas. Right. And at the time, Jimmy played the uh, psychedelic music, and Stevie played the, uh, no, Stevie played the psychedelic. Jimmy played the blues. They kept switching around, right? Which one would play which right, direction? Right, right. Oh wow! And uh, I know my senior uh, year, I was president of my class, and and we hired. Uh, jimmy's band uh the chessmen to play at our all-night party nice. and me and my bandmates and a few other guys we just sit there listening to them and our, yeah our girlfriends are like what are you doing and we're like play that one play this one yeah because they there was all these amazing musicians who were like us who were semi-pro who weren't really full professional right and we saw every act imaginable come through there i mean when i to tina turner came and played i went backstage and talked to him sure you know it was because you could It was just James Brown came and played on our teenage dance show that they had in in this TV studio in the mall, (laughs) and there he is going across the stage. So we had an advantage over musicians today because the true heritage of American music and its contribution from every um, age group, from every gender, from every sexual orientation, from every color, from every ethnicity, from every everything, it was there. And it was just pouring and roaring through Texas, mm. and this is where I was really coming of age as a musician.
1: There was there was a heavy jazz thing in Dallas too. That so was it was such a Four heavy Nett jazz thing. David Fadhead Newman, Hank Crawford, you know, like a, such a heavy jazz thing. And but
0: Newman, jazz, McMahon, jazz was like the, for most of us was the unreachable height. Right. Okay. I was still trying to figure out jazz, and I finally did when I moved to the Bay Area. But that's yeah. a little later in the yeah, story. Yeah. So first, um, in '69. Uh, the, the pop festivals came through America. Mm-hmm. It was Woodstock. It was the sure. same summer: Woodstock, Atlanta, Texas, and Altamont. These right. four concerts. Altamont was the last. One. Was the last yeah, one that happened know. in the fall, and it right. ended the whole thing. Yeah, in that very much so. in that phase. People
1: say that that ended the decade, dude. That was it. For it
0: really did kind of p- put an end to that in one way, but in another way, a whole other thing was being born. So, my brothers and I, we all worked the Texas pop pop festival the whole week right and here's all these acts and they're backstage and we're talking to them and i'm you know it's just wavy gravy was there and ah. chipmunk was the announcer it was the same crew that did woodstock right except for bill graham he wasn't yeah, producing wasn't, that he's... show a guy named angus win who had a company called shoco in dallas Shoko is still one of the big sound companies in america yes. and he was just starting Shoko in those days oh. so we all worked for him and we, we did that well my parents Marriage was breaking up. Uh, I got drafted number six in the first draft that fall. Oh, yeah. I knew I was going to the war since I finished college.
1: So this is 69? 69, 69. Yeah, fall 69. Okay. Just, just I, was, sure. I was
0: very political. I was in the SDS. And uh, we were marching. And uh, my brothers and I, it was kind of like I was dead man walking. Right. And we had already a cousin who died in Vietnam. He was one of the first hundred guys to die there. Wow. Martin Hasper, Jr. And uh, so I figured I'm going to die. And my brother said, well, before you die, let's go to Haight-Ashbury and make rock and roll. All right. And so I dropped out of college. Everything fell apart. And my brothers and I loaded the van. And off we went to the Haight-Ashbury.
1: Good summer to be there.
0: And, uh, well, we arrived actually... We made our plan and we finally arrived in February of nineteen seventy. Okay. And the Haight Ashbury by that time was practically over. Yeah. Um, but it was still there. What we you imagine is the Hate Ashbury was still there, but you could already tell that it it was leaving. Right. The stars had gone to Marin, uh, the political action had moved to Berkeley. Right. And so I lived in the Haight Ashbury for a while and I joined this commune. We joined a commune that was in all three places. Then we lived in Marin while, and then we ended up in Berkeley. And Berkeley was really where the action had moved yeah. to in the Bay Area. So that, my
1: partner's from Charlie. Charlie Hunter grew up in Berkeley, yeah. and he was born, I believe, in '67. So his mother, very politically active, like so. This is there's a connection here. This is kind of cool.
0: And uh, my daughter was born in '72 in Petaluma. Oh, okay. But I was in the commune when she was born, so she's a real flower child. Oh yes. Yeah, <laughs> Who lives here in South Pass? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we, we joined the commune and it was a very forward-thinking group of people yeah. and the name of it was the One World Family okay. and the One World Family was a commune that made its living running natural food organic restaurants. Okay. We had the first chain in America.
1: I was going to say. It's,
0: uh... We had the first whole wheat bakery in America. We were, we were pioneering real food. Alice Waters was a friend of ours. Oh, well. uh, there was this whole new movement on food, right? Real food in the Bay Area. And We were right there in the middle of it. And then at night, my brothers and I, we'd play rock and roll, right? And that morphed into psychedelic, and the psychedelic era, which goes from about '67 to '73. Right. We were in the Bay Area for the, like the last three years of it. Right. And we became, I guess, one of the leading psychedelic bands, which, and that. For us, it was kind of a mixture of being totally amateur. Right, right, right. In which you allow yourself to do crazy stuff that no professional would ever think of doing. Sure. And then being trained enough as a musician to actually play credible music. Right. Where people would listen. Right. Eventually, we got a following that not only included all the hippies, included all the New Agers, because hippie had now morphed into New Age. Right. Uh, But we got a lot of jazz guys. Yeah. And Then we got a lot of R and B guys coming and seeing us.
1: It was one of the better areas for both of them. Yeah, and and, I mean, it was and an incredible the funk, it,
0: the funk was rubbing off on us. Yeah. And we were rubbing off on it. Yeah. We get these guys coming. Uh, we get two black guys uh, come from a club down in Oakland, in East Oakland. They said we want you to come down and play with our band. Oh yeah. And we're like, dude, we come down and play with your band, they're gonna kill us. Yeah. Gonna get, we're gonna get shot. And he said, yeah. no, no, if you're with us, it won't happen. I said, why? You're the head of the gang. And he goes, yeah, yeah, coming down. And we're like, oh my. Yeah. So, and then we had jazz musicians that would come around, John Handy and uh, Doc yeah. Ellis, and these guys would yeah. come. In. And now I realize they probably sit there and watch us and went, "These kids are crazy. Yeah. How can they do what they're doing?" I mean, at one point, my brother and I, both guitar players, we were playing our echoplexes. Yeah. We would make a few sounds and then we'd start manipulating. Yeah. Which is when you think about the beginning of synthesizers and DJ programming. Absolutely. We're just playing the sounds and the drummers you, going.
1: You were doing what Brian Eno and Robert Fripp ended up saying they invented. You exactly. Exactly. We were doing it about three, four years before. We were the, doing it yeah.
0: and, and we, yes.
1: And we are brilliant, I'm saying. No,
0: <laughs> I, think like, you're, I think you're yeah. brilliant too. And yeah. we didn't know what we were doing, but we yeah. were doing it. Yeah. So it was fascinating to people. We had a 360 degree light show. Right. We the had, had whole psychedelic thing. We had a guy handing out LSD from Owsley's laboratory. Yeah. A guy named Psychedelic Jerry who wore this really crazy outfit and red hair. Psychedelic Psychedelic, psychedelic Jerry. His Jerry. last name was Moskowitz probably. <laughs> and on the back he had a had a hell's angels jean jacket. He, everything was painted white except his red hair and this like Hell's Angels uh, logo, colors logo on the back of his jean jacket that said "stoned Buddha," and it oh, had the boot in the middle of it. <laughs> this this was an so era. So
1: really smack dab in the middle of a I'm very writing, specific American experience. I'm
0: writing a novel about it right now. Oh, okay. I'm in the middle of writing about it because I got to tell everybody about this. It's just telling the truth. People won't believe. Oh, yeah. that can't that couldn't have really happened. Right. But it did. And then we got this guy from a high school st mary's high school he said we want to do production of tommy and uh-huh. we need a band to play the score yeah. and we said like the whole score
2: yeah.
0: the whole thing yeah. and he goes yeah and we got all these dancers we got like these kids they're all going to dance and then you're going to play so we did it yeah. and not? and we played Tommy. we would we actually gave the first complete performances of tommy in america oh wow so the who hadn't done it
1: yet no 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 right not, yeah
0: and so eventually this thing really went off at their high school and we had a kid who played drums for us today who was going to the high school named Billy Carmasi. He was an amazing drummer, Some maybe the best drummer I've ever played with. Wow. His brother is Denny Carmasi. Yeah,
1: I was just going to say it has to be. Okay,
0: good. so Denny was playing with uh, Hagar, with yeah. Sammy Hagar, and he was also playing with, yeah. oh, there was another guitar player in the Bay Area, he was, Denny was just a monster. Yeah. Well, Billy was also a monster. Sure. So we played it there at the high school. Then we started playing it at the theater that we had at the commune at Telegraph and Haste, right on Telegraph Avenue. Oh, wow. And people, we, we were doing Tommy, and it was just, it was amazing. We got hired to do it at, when they opened Embarcadero Center in San Francisco. Mm. The Rockefeller family hired us to come and play in the uh, little plaza they yeah, had yeah, there, yeah, the psychedelic band. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. High schools would hire us for their prom. <laughs> oh, wow. And then the Who's people showed up. Yeah, and they said you guys got to stop. Yeah, you got to stop. This is too popular. You're not licensed to do yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was okay.
1: Cease and desist. Right. So that was
0: just that was my whole era of music, and up that, until that point in time, that whole scene broke up. We went yeah. through the people's park riots and all that.
1: It, it, did it, it, it. I get the sense that it broke up and it, it just, just deteriorated. I mean, there were certain acts that came out of that scene that were gigantic and became like. You know, I mean, if you think about the Bay Area in that time and what came out between funk and jazz and rock and, you know, it's, you, you oh. have Journey and Sly and the Family Stone and, you know, the Tower of Power and East you Bay, know, Greece. It, 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 That's what we
0: called it. Yeah, it's the it's, it, you know, it was our nickname for all of us. Yeah. OK, because we the psychedelic era left, but what was left over was this intense R&B. Yeah.
1: It's it some of the most defining stuff. Just you know?
0: intense. Arm. I knew all those guys. Okay. Yeah. And one of the guys I knew was a guy named Lenny Pickett. Well,
1: of course. I know Lenny from working at SNL. Right. You know, But okay. I also know Lenny from being a kid and listening to Lenny Pickett. Okay. He's amazing. So,
0: so when I first met Lenny, yeah. he was just coming to Berkeley like we did. Yeah. And he used to come and eat at the commune, right? And he would sit in with bands and he finally joined a band called Grayson Street. And every night we were coming home from the restaurant in the middle of the night, Lenny would be in some parking garage. Uh, emptied out concrete-like bunker parking garage of the university, practicing his yeah. sax all day, all night. Lenny's just playing. But he'd come to the community once and we saw the Krishna uh, guys going up and down Telegraph Avenue doing the Hare yeah. Krishna-Rama-Rama thing. Lenny goes, why don't we go up and down the street doing When the Saints Go Marching In? Because yeah. there were some players in the community that played horns. Yeah. So we got the horn players, the guitar players, the banjo people, and Lenny leading this whole thing playing When the Saints Go Marching In. That's great. And we went going around Telegraph Avenue and he was a great friend he still is yeah he's a great guy uh i always admired the move that he made because you know when he got picked up by bowie and all those people yeah. well first he went tower power and that little dance he used to do which was insanely great yeah but he went to Bowie, and then he he decided no yeah. i talked to him about this i said lenny i'm still working for it i'm going to hit the big time and he said brad there is no big time mm-hmm. he said there's just our instruments what we play and what we do mm-hmm. And, and he really took that to the cleaners. And I want every musician who ever is to hear this, I want you to know that Lenny Pickett made probably one of the best moves a musician can make.
3: Yeah.
0: He traded that ride, which he was being given, for a steady gig. Yeah. And the steady gig was SNL. And when he joined SNL, there were all those other band leaders. Yeah. There was Paul, and then there was, uh, yeah. you know.
1: Oh man, I mean the guys that were in that band, I think right before him, it was Sam, David Sanborn was in the band, Marcus Miller was in the band, uh, uh Espinoza, uh, uh I mean it was yeah and Paul G. Stavrid, Smith G. took over G.E. took over for a while and th- I mean but like in the horn section see and this is cool because it's connected to this show in the horn section with him on trombone is Steve Touré Steve yeah. Touré started with Ross Roland Kirk actually yes. he started with Ray Charles and then his next gig was Ross Roland Kirk and like you know then he's then he's got my respect forever because Lenny Because he's just really a voice on his instrument, and he made a smart choice to be, get back I to I think, your point.
0: It, as a musician, you know, uh, I would tell the guys going to Musician's Institute, the people studying music at UCLA or, or Cal State Northridge or, or Long Beach. Yeah, Berkeley College of Music. Any, any anywhere you're studying, anywhere you're going, anywhere you want a career, there's two ways to go. You can try to do what I did and become a star, <laughs> and get whatever comes of it. Yeah. Or you can do what Lenny did, and you can stick to your instrument. And the thing also people got recognized recognize about Lenny, because you don't get any big promo on Lenny, he could play in a rock band, an R&B band, a funk band, a soul band, a blues band, a jazz band, an experimental band, yeah. there is no field Scenario. of music where you play a horn that he couldn't do it.
1: Yeah. Big I mean, band or whatever. Last year he was on a big Katy Perry hit.
0: <laughs> That's how great he is.
1: And and he was on that hit because a buddy of ours, a you know, closer friend of his than mine, but uh, the old guitar player from the band becomes this gigantic pop record producer. You know, Lukash Gottwald yeah. becomes Dr. Luke. Yeah. Lenny brought him into that band. So, like, you know, Lenny's just a... I like Lenny, man. Lenny Lenny's buried his
0: people. ego back when I first met him, when he was in his 20s.
1: He understood that there was a marathon and not a sprint. He
0: he could have been as outrageous a star. All you got to do is look at the old videos of Tower Power and yeah. see him doing that dance, and you go oh wow he's not just a guy who stands there and plays with that really sweet look on his face no 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 he's, he's actually a crazy character yeah. and, and i knew the crazy kooky character yeah who morphed into the yeah. sweetheart playing those amazing high notes that hardly anybody can hit yeah and i think that's a lesson that goes to what we're talking about mm-hmm. and what you were you and i met about yeah. the internet and who we are as musicians today and how we're going to get paid and what's the best way to go about it
1: before we get there, though, I want to hear more about people in the Bay Area. <laughs> Did well, you know Mike Clark at all, the drummer? Uh, I didn't know him personally. Okay. No. Just I, wondering because we had him on the show, and it just he's a, he's a monster. I
0: knew he's a, a lot of guys tangentially, right. uh, you know, Doc and all those guys. I right. mean, because in the commune, in the restaurant, yeah, we always had like Miles Davis would be sitting there one sure. night. Sure, sure, sure you, know, sure. you know, I'll take the peel off. Yeah. <laughs> great. Yes, Mr. Davis. Yeah, you got eat something. Yeah, <laughs> yes, wow. Mr. Davis. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, you you're serving Miles Davis rice pilaf, and you're like, ah.
1: Were you there when Richard Pryor was living up there? Because he took like a three or four year period. I I'm think it sure, may have been a little bit before.
0: I'm, oh, I don't, I'm not sure, but I mean, Whoopi Goldberg, she belonged to the Blake Street Hawkeyes, right? Okay, uh, and she had Robin Williams. All those. It, it was. Because he
1: met, I think he met them there. He lived in in the Bay Area. In in
0: then he must have come through where we were at one time, or right? Right, because we were the center. Of, we were the, well. You can imagine, like today, there's a lot of natural food. Oh yeah. When we started baking whole wheat bread and supplying it to all of the um, natural food stores that were propping up Holy mm-hmm. Foods and different yeah. places, and my mother said to me, she said, "Well, who wants to buy that old brown bread?" <laughs> because in those days you go in the grocery store it's all white bread except sure. for a roman meal
1: yeah roman meal why i've heard that in a long time but go in the grocery
0: store now yeah and look for the white bread
1: yeah well, that's the revolution it depends what sp- part of what city you're in even if you yeah. go
0: to down the deep south the revolution that we were a part of was cultural mm. it wasn't necessarily about even lifestyle or music it was the culture of what do you listen to? How do you treat each other? Earth Day. I was there when Earth Day was invented. Right, right, right. We just went through Earth Day again. Right. I was there in the first Earth Day. Right. It was uh, the whole Earth catalog. Yes. Stuart Brand was, was still publishing, was access to tools. Now that's the internet. Mm-hmm. Okay. So all of these things were being born. This whole new age reality came out of the hippie, beatnik, bohemian legacy. And it was always cultural and it was always art-based, and then it was also living, just how human beings, how we relate to each other. Right. Um,
1: very instrumental from that part of the country, too. Yes. I mean, if you think it's still to this day, you know.
0: The, the switch in San Francisco <laughs> and in the Bay Area is from uh, the Haight-Ashbury to Silicon Valley. Yeah. Okay. And it's quite an incredible story. It is an incredible story, and there's a lot of good that comes from both, but there's also some things that are not good that come from both. And the thing that we're dealing with now is is what came out of Silicon Valley, which comes from a real hippie New Age ethic, really, yeah. no. uh, and exploration. But when I moved on from that, uh, my brother and I then started going all over the country, just touring, playing cover music. and
1: So you were drafted, but you didn't... Well the the what well,
0: happened I uh I was got my pre-induction in 1970 and went to the most infamous induction center in Oakland oh, wow. where there was demonstrators out front every day. And on the first this is my first go around with those guys uh I wasn't going to serve in Vietnam. I didn't mind going in the military. Okay. I came from a military family. Yeah. But I told them my and they they ask you this form you fill out at the end and uh they said, anything else you want to tell us? And I said, yeah, if you uh, draft me, I'll go in, but I won't pick up a gun. And they said, you do realize you'll go to the brig? I said, yeah, like David Harris. Yeah. I said, you can put me in the brig for two years. right?" But you're from a military family. Why would you do that? Yeah. I said, because this isn't a war worth fighting.
3: Yeah.
0: I said, I got no beef with the Vietnamese. Right. Why do I want to kill Vietnamese? Yeah. I said, I could see some of the other wars we fought as Americans, yeah. but I can't see this at all. Right. And they were totally confused course I didn't they let me go that day mm. uh, a bunch of guys I'd say the 200 300 guys are in there most of them got on the bus and went to Nam. Wow. and then a year later I, I went back to Texas in the in-between uh, I left California went back to Texas for a few months and then came back mm. and when I came back they gave me my final induction notice they said we thought about it we're going to indu- induct you and put you in the brig or whatever the hell it is you want to do Really? but my mother in the in-between She also didn't want me to go to the war and die. And when I was growing up, I broke my left arm three times, both bones, same place. Right, so. The last guy who fixed it was the bone doctor for the Dallas Cowboys, okay? And he had, his son had gone to war and he was all gung-ho, but I believe the son died there. And now he wasn't gung-ho. Right. And um, this is at least what I was told. And he wrote a letter from my mother that said if I was inducted, I would make it through boot camp without breaking my arm again, which is probably true. Yeah. He said, and then nobody could fix it. Right. So I went through the whole induction ceremony again. And this is, I mean, even talking about it makes me kind of feel weird. But we get to the end of the day and all the guys are filing out into the bus. I've spent all day with these guys. We're all sitting around in our underwear. They make you be in your underwear the whole time. Uh. And me and about six other guys didn't go and the doctor who saw me at the end he said so break your arm huh i said yeah he said well i want to send you anyway but i can't he said but i want to tell you when enough of those other guys have died we're going to come for you yeah so i'm not going to give you a four f i'm gonna give you a one Y. wow so he gave me a one one Y means that you can be called up in extenuating circumstances Uh four f means you can never be called up that I know. He gave me one why. So I spent the entire Vietnam War draftable. Yeah. And yeah. I spent the next, was four or five years yeah, waiting plenty. for them to call me. Uh, I didn't end up going, but I stood outside on the sidewalk, uh, ready to get a bus back up to Berkeley and watch all those guys get on the bus. Mm-hmm. And so when I go to D.C., and I've been there many times in my political work, and I go to the wall... And I know that there's a name or two, or maybe more on that wall, of the guys who were in that room with me that day. Absolutely. And I wrote a song called The Ones Who Didn't Come Home. It's on my new record. Mm. And it's about them, and it's about my cousin, Marty Hasper, Mm. who died there. And unfortunately, it applies to all the wars that we've done since.
1: Uh, Yeah, it really does.
0: And uh, the other day, I went and wrote songs with veterans on a thing called uh, Songwriting with Soldiers. and. Down in Long Beach, and I wrote some really cool songs with these vets of, from all the different wars, mm. and uh, it's not the soldiers; it's the politicians. Always, yeah. So, this this radicalized me, made me political active uh, this whole time because the government came for me. Yeah, and the government said we're going to turn you into a killer.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, I didn't get that, but I got I stayed politically active. I kept the music going, mm. and then in 1980, uh, my. Older brother and my youngest brother, because the third brother who played in a band with us in Berkeley, he'd gone to become a painter. Oh, okay. He ended up getting a master's from Stanford. And oh, wow. He's a great painter. Uh, but the three of us formed a band uh, called No BS.
1: Oh, yeah, Nobs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No Wait, you worked with um...
0: David Kahn. Yeah. Yeah, we were. That's
1: worked. like, that's pretty heavy, man. Yeah. That, we, that's great. I we, love David Kahn. We
0: were from that whole punk era of sure. the Bay Area. And uh, but we did a little take that was more like the blasters. Um, right. We did really hyped up R and B. It was it was his Fran and we also did like a ska thing like the the two tone guys or twin tone guys from England. Mm. That whole movement of blue beat and ska. But every so the punk movement wasn't just about guys who couldn't play.
3: Mm-mm.
0: It also had the energy of some of us who could play. Right. But we wanted to recapture that old rock and roll energy. Right. Yeah, we wore sharkskin suits and skinny ties and stuff and before. And then New Wave came yeah, out of that. Yeah, I was just
1: gonna say, okay. that, that fits right into that aesthetic. They
0: call this cowpunk, Punk. They call this Blue Wave. They call this all yeah. kinds of, of things. But we were in that era, right? And that's what finally spun me out of the Bay Area, okay? Because Chris Nab, who was Howie Klein's partner oh, at Four One Five Records, yeah, uh, they were all moving to L.A. Yeah okay i,
1: I mean he, our clients here yeah I mean,
0: yeah and so they said you got to move to l.a Khan was moving they're all yeah. moving. they said move to l.a nashville and new york you guys have outgrown here right you've played everywhere you know yeah, you've yeah. opened for every band right and so i said i wanted to go and two of us went and two of the band members decided to stay and that broke up that band ah. and i ended up here and then i i ended up working for michael dolan at music connection magazine he had a thing called music industry network and I worked for him there. And then I went from there to Gold Mountain Records, working for Danny Goldberg yeah, and Paula Jeffries, yeah. where I met my first wife died. And then oh. I met my second wife, Wendy Waldman, who was coming in there trying to get a record made. Yeah. And oh, uh, yeah. we got married, and then I moved to Nashville, me and my daughter. And uh, Wendy and I had a son, Abe. And, nice,
1: my grandfather's name. Yeah. Anybody named Abe is cool. It's a good one, isn't book. it? Yeah.
0: And then... Uh, I had a lot of success at country music, um, hits, uh, a lot of album cuts. Then I started producing. I had I produced a hit country act, a guy named Rick Vincent.
3: Yeah,
0: sure. As soon as he hit big, he decided he didn't want to be in country music. <laughs> We're like, yeah, wow, dude. Yeah. Did we really spend five years on this? Yeah, but I guess you don't know until it happens, exactly. right? Exactly,
1: that happens a lot. Or they get where they hit big, and then they decide, you know, I'm the producer, or they hit big, and you know, we were doing radio.
0: Yeah, we were doing radio in those days. You had to go. You had to visit every R and R station in America. Yeah, right. So Curb put us on the road. Yeah, and we were on, for nine months. Right. We go to the uh-huh. station in Phoenix. It was owned by uh, Buck Owens, and this gal, this reporter, says to him, to Mr. Vincent, "How do you feel being a product?" Yeah. And I thought to saw the blood drain yeah. out of his face and is and this shock? And I think he went downhill from then. Yeah,
1: that was. And it. I said
0: to her, he's not a product. He's a musician. Yeah. He's a singer. He's not a product. Oh, no, no, no. She goes, no, no, you're a product. And she was giving him that real cynical. Yeah. Which, of course, is partly true, but not really. Yeah. I mean, if you think of Lenny Pickett, you think, yeah. no, 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 we are because, what, well, I could never get him out of the tailspin. No. He, his first single was a top 10. It had been a year since a new artist had a top 10 in country music oh wow and the best part for me is i played lead guitar on it oh and so we went to, we were in lubbock texas in the same studio buddy holly and whalen and and all those guys that come from sure and the dj says you know what i really like about this record whoever played that lead guitar it's not like all those damn nashville guitar players oh it's really solid it's really like old school and I was, yeah, that's me. yeah That's, that's cool. <laughs> so this all of a sudden weird. I was a Nashville cat. Yeah. But it was just one crazy experience after another. And then we Wendy and I, we started writing for all the hair bands, the spandex bands in L.A. Yeah, really? Hurricane and yeah. Flame and, oh, my God, they brought in uh, Lou Welch from Foreigner. And we were writing with all these people. And, and it was really working because they were wonderful guys to work with. I mean, really? just wonderful guys to work with. Uh, and... Doug Aldrich, the guy who was playing with Hurricane, he took me out to Grover Jackson's factory in Fullerton. And yeah. and Grover made me this amazing custom, one-of-a-kind yeah. Jackson guitar that I sure. still have to this day.
1: Wow, how do you get from country to hair? I mean, I guess... At you, the same time. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm doing it the same That's time. That's amazing. I think it was that... I wouldn't even... Because I, I guess their songs, they're just presented in a specific way.
0: It goes back to guitar playing for me in Texas. Because yeah. in Texas, we could play Canned Eat one day and then we could play Bob Wills the next, right so you really you could do it all yeah. and all the guys that I knew who did one or the other also did the other yeah they just didn't do it on stage right so you know America is it, it's a real mashup and no and sure. so we could so then we got a cut with Cher and then Edgar Winter and then the thing was so we moved back to LA because now the rock thing is going
1: right it was going really strong
0: and Wendy and I had a great time yeah. and that's when we wrote with Barry Mann and yeah Uh, but somewhere along the line, our careers went in two different directions. We got really big. We lost touch with each other and we got a divorce. Sure. And I ended up in Asia because I'd been there on a trip and there was a lot of opportunity to produce and write in Asia. Sure. And I needed a break. Yeah. Uh, after all of that, this is in like 95. Right. 96.
1: It's funny. I was doing a lot of work overseas around that time. I was younger, Mm -hmm. sort of started my career. And I always remember... talk to friends of mine that are working on hit records in the states and be why why are you in france and i I would just be like why not (laughs) why not they make hit records here too you know it's like i totally get it dude i totally yeah just exposed to other cultures exposed to you know maybe the music wasn't what i grew up listening to but you know there's opportunities all over the planet
0: i was making music talk about now what i grew up listening to yeah. it was so far afield from anything that i'd come across like
1: canto pop or like i a...
0: made canto pop hits yeah uh i yeah. made uh mando pop hits
1: mando pop uh,
0: yeah <laughs>
1: which is really i was standing in an that's eight... a mainland pop <laughs> that's right and, and with
0: a taiwanese singer mm. uh i was stand... That's kind of punk yeah i was yeah. standing in, in an hmv store in hong kong one time in the video was on of this guy, E. King Chang, and he was, he had a hit record that I co-wrote with a guy named Harold Payne. And I knew the, his, his producer, Comfort Chan. I always loved Comfort's name. Comfort Chan. Chan.
1: But somebody has to use that name as a character. I'm telling stuff, you, man, that's an amazing name. This
0: guy was a great producer. He's oh, wow. a great music man. And yeah. I'm watching the video, and these girls, 16, 15 years old, are just all enthralled. And oh, it's like Bobby Soxers, right?
1: Yeah.
0: That, they're going to break out screaming at him, man. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what are the odds that those chicks would think that the old white guy, the Guaylo, standing yeah. next to, him actually wrote that yeah. record? <laughs> and then it hit me. Cause you're talking about writing in foreign countries. Sure. There are kids that were teenagers 15 years ago in mainland China who were listening to my music and falling in love and forever in the soundtrack of their life, they will be hearing melodies and words that I created with my friend Harold Payne. Yeah, And we'd become part of their life without them even knowing
1: it. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, there would be no, you know, there would be no thought that there would be a connection between those things. at Never,
0: all, never. You know? They will never know. No. But what I learned from that was this: in this universality of what we do as music, is the strength of our connection to the consumer. Right. It is. 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 It, is, it doesn't need a name. It's like Lenny playing on Saturday Night Live. It doesn't say Lenny Pickett in the Saturday Night Live band.
1: No, it just resonates a specific. But
0: name. if you know him like I do and you do, when you hear the band and you hear him riff. Yeah like they're getting it from him
1: yeah
0: okay the power is coming from what he's helping them do and they're all great musicians so they just have to play into it but it's they're so music in its most elemental level of vibrations just Mm -hmm. pure vibrations either words or music right communicates to everybody worldwide of course that's us it's we the guys who make it the music makers it's them the music lovers we're the bond There's these other guys in the middle, and the other guys in the middle, they rear up their their ugly heads every now and then, and and they screw everything up. And then we have to kind of set them straight and get everything going again. When I first started writing for major publishers and major record companies, the guys who ran the business were old salesmen. Yeah, Uh, And um, uh, the old guys, okay, who was the guy I'm thinking of? It's it's not... uh, Chuck, it's. Um,
1: uh, I I think I know who Chuck is.
0: Uh no, it, it's his his dad, Lester yeah, Lester Sil, Lester Sil,
1: Lester, Sill. Lester Sill. Chuck K, Chuck K, yeah, and Greg, and all family friends.
0: I worked for all of those guys, but right. Talking to Lester, it was the best thing because Lester what Lester told me was the ethic of the old guys.
3: Right.
0: I don't like your music, I don't have to like your music. No. I don't care about your music. If your music sells, I'm going to make sure you get everything you need to make right. more of it. Wow! Yeah. Wow! Yeah. What What a business idea! I know. That's how they built that amazing business. I know. Ed Gone. Sullivan didn't like the Beatles. He yeah. didn't have to like the Beatles.
1: Ed Sullivan had Ross on Roland Kirk on at one point. Do you exactly. think he sat around listening yeah. to Ross? Play the Stretch. Play the yeah. Manzella. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Big Stretch fan. I'm a Stretch fan a from big, way back. Yeah, Ed and the Stretch. <laughs> right. And and he, I was born on it. On. it yeah. Right. No. But uh, you're, you're totally right, and it's funny. You know from my family history like i know chuck Kay. you know i know his brother joel like you know i you know i grew up around them and i know that they learned from their father you know like you know the ethic yeah
0: the ethic was we're making products for these people the consumers from these people the creators and we're staying out of the way we're the capitalists.
1: We stay out of the way, and this leads to what we were talking about earlier exactly. before we start recording. I want to get into that it's, cause I,
0: exactly. Yeah. But it's it's that bridge, and these guys stayed out of the way. But then a new group of guys came in who, who, for most part, were the lawyers and accountants of the old guys.
1: Or what I noticed because it's funny, I started young enough to see maybe a, a generation and a half ago. I noticed a lot of guys coming in from other industries.
0: Yes, absolutely, corporate. And, and
1: it would—it it always cracked me up. I remember because you know you would see at companies, and this is a weird thing for me to know because like, it's—I think it's a di- an interesting perspective when you're 19 and you know that someone from Cadbury shouldn't be working at Warner Music Group. No, in any. But but it it occurred and it affected you know it affected everything. Well, that's
0: what ruined it, okay? Because because yeah. because look. And well, this is basic business. I once to set a across, I won't even say his name out of, really, it matter, out of respect yeah. for yeah. a guy, a major publisher. And I said, you know what the problem with this business is now? And he said, what? I said, I can do my job, yeah. and I could also do your job. Yeah. But you can't do either one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's a dressing down. I,
0: I said, uh, <laughs> you do you see what a problem that is?
1: Yeah, that, there's just, yeah. <laughs> go, go back to selling peeps. Can you just play? No, no. See, he couldn't sell. He was yeah. a
0: lawyer. Yeah. He didn't know anything about sales. Yeah. He didn't know about selling. He wasn't. He didn't have the motto "The customer is always right" <laughs> written up above his
1: desk. No, he had the customer is always wrong, and I'm going
0: to prove why No, wrong. no his, his, his I'm going to screw the customer, screw uh, yeah. the creator. I'm going to get as large a percentage I can of everything. Yeah. His, he told me he said, "I don't want to sign a guy like you to a record deal because you know too much. I want to sign a young guy who doesn't know anything, get a monster hit, and then drop him." So, I can make the most off of it. I said, You can't build a business that way.
1: I mean, you can. It's just, it's almost the same way politicians have a four year run and they do as much damage as they can and that's then they're it. gone. That's it. So, and it, it is that model and that's a, a culture wide model. Yes,
0: yes, it is. And it, the last thing he said to me, because this crop of characters who run the corporate music business, which is failing, uh, and it should, uh, and we need it to, uh, he said, I said, Well, there's the internet. I, as a creator, I'm going to find a way to get directly a consumer and, yeah. cut, and cut you out. Yeah. He said, and, no, 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 no. We're yeah. going to let you make that model, yeah. and then we're going to use our billions of dollars, and we're going to buy it, and we're going to take it over. Mm. I said, but if you do, you'll kill it. Yeah. he said, nah, don't worry about that. Yeah. So there was a cynical point of view of a certain kind of character yeah. who you and I know well, yeah. who has no ethics, has no morals, uh, and this guy had a lot of other bad behavior, which I won't no, yeah. bring up. Yeah. Uh which kept him from doing the basic thing that Lester Sill and the old guys did, yeah. which was satisfying the customer and leaving the creator alone. Yeah. Okay? And uh-huh. so, what we've got now, the problem we have now...
1: <laughs> I thought... <laughs> I, I had this thought earlier today. Yeah? One of the problems we have now <laughs> yeah? is that we went from writing songs, like... I, I had this thought, I, it might not even be funny, but... We went from a culture of writing songs like "Save the Last Dance for Me" mm-hmm. to "Save the Last E for Me." Like, save, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like so. There's, there's, there's a combination of things that obviously is not the road I want to go down because I, I do want to speak to the, you know, you you had brought up, you know, this 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 sort of non-confrontational approach to, you know, the Game of uh, Thrones, d- d- yeah. Don't be don't. All right, don't ruin anything for me. I'm only in season three, but it is a Game of Thrones. It's a chess game. Yeah, but it's almost worse.
0: Oh no, okay. It's it's we're in a we're in an epic struggle. Yeah. And I think the people are listening to your podcast, and thank you for having me on here because there's just a couple things I want to impart to them. And first one is an overview. There are four eras of communication. Uh, Marshall McLuhan laid this out so well in uh, the Gutenberg Galaxy. If you've never read the Gutenberg Galaxy and you're interested in communications,
1: I'll put a link up. You
0: owe it to yourself to read the Gutenberg Galaxy, in which he completely enunciates everything you need to know about the four eras of communication. The first era of communication is language. When human beings stopped just hunting and gathering and even painting on a wall and learned how to talk, speak with each other, that became the first era of communication, speech. The second year of communication is writing. Okay? Speech morphed into
1: dialogue and dialect. I just have to interject. When the first person, who was the first guy that learned how to speak, that said, "How am I going to fuck this guy?" Okay. <laughs> I said then, yeah. I'm sorry. He was yeah, thinking ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's already he's, thinking he's there. He's like, how can I get his publishing? No, sorry. He Go said, on. "Trust me." That was the first <laughs> yeah. words
0: out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. What's Neanderthal for? Trust me. Trust yeah. me. Yeah. You're, you're, you're going to bleep this, but <laughs> no, there was, I'm not. There was an
0: <laughs> old joke: <laughs> if they don't like you in New York, they say, "Fuck you." Yeah. If they don't like you in L.A., they say, "Trust me." Yeah. If they don't like you in Nashville, they say, "Bless your heart." They all mean the same thing that's
1: brilliant all right okay. so that leads back to, that leads to writing you said writing well the... actually
0: language becomes dialect and, and each tribe to have their own language right there's no common language so each one it, that's how it evolved then became writing writing at first wherever it started and we kind of tend to think it was in samaria or somewhere in in the tigris euphrates valley it could have been over in the yellow river they were also developing
1: I love thinking it was an east <laughs> Right. east yeah, that's yeah. it. East side.
0: Could have been Easter. Uh, so,
1: so writing comes in. Writing
0: comes in and, and writing develops into not just uh, ropes uh, or be, or knots in, in ropes or strings or clay tablets and cuneiform and all that. It develops into manuscripts. Right. Manuscripts, whether they're um, papyrus scrolls, or whether they're illuminated manuscripts of the monks in Europe, or whether they're the um, wall hangings in Asia. right? They're, those are all manuscripts. right? And to make manuscripts, you have to sit in a room where somebody verbally says to you what to write, and then you write it down yourself. Mm. You scribe it manually yourself onto something, and that's education. Basically, that's how colleges started. Right. So manuscripts became the thing. And if you were a great writer, at the end of the manuscript era which is somewhere around the late 1300s then you were a published author by the fact that your book that you wrote would be then taken to a college a school mm. and the teacher would sit and read the book right. and the students would rewrite the book right. would write their own copy of the book those that's the first copy and the first copyright mm. was you being able to copy you were right. given the right to copy the work of the author by sitting in the class and copying it. These things weren't done outside of the church or some special school for the aristocrats or whatever. So most people were illiterate. And uh, like in this modern thing, the Game of Thrones, which we'll get to in the political battle, half of the people in the cast are illiterate. They can't read, okay? Because that's a special, special scientific ability that only a few people are allowed to have because the people who do it know how powerful it is. The next thing that comes along is movable type. Movable type is the beginning of the mechanical era. The industri- which gave rise to the industrial era because everything in the industry is based on movable type. Movable type is the assembly line. We're going to take Mechanical things, put them together, and we're going to repeat the process in a uniform, homogeneous way over and over and over again. And when books were first printed, Francis Bacon said, It's the end of civilization because now right. every Tom, Dick, and Harry can write his own book. Oh, wow. And the people who really know and should be writing books will no longer, it will be no longer exclusively our right to write a book. Wow. So the mechanical era turns into the industrial era, and just near the beginning of it, the electric era begins. Right. And the first electric, and there's a big difference between electric and electronic. Right. The first electric era communication device is the telegraph. Yeah. And it really changed the game. Because the telegraph, for the first time, changed the speed of the transmission of information. Okay? The telegraph then gave rise to the telephone, which... The telephone was even faster than telegraph because the speed that you can get a sound to go on a telegraph over hundreds of miles was much slower than the speed you can get a direct phone conversation. Right. So now we're speeding up. Then we hit a new era, electronics, right. and really the beginning of electronics is the light bulb. Right. Okay. The light bulb is what gives rise to tubes. And tubes, vacuum tubes especially, which give rise to transistors and integrated circuit chips, it's the first thing where they say, let's take that electricity and not just use it for the direct transmission of energy, let's put it into something that will amplify or then eventually store or eventually calculate. And so the electronic era begins and the first problem for creative people comes with the radio. In the era of the radio, most people don't know this, there was a huge gashrai, uh, to use one of my my wife's favorite words. That is a great word. It's a great word. A furor, a madness from the publishers. And the first publishers who really used the mechanical era were the piano roll guys. Right. I mean, before them, there was the sheet music guys. And the sheet music is also from the movable type era. Yeah. Okay, so there's all these inventions. But you could control all that. Only certain people could buy sheet music and buy a piano roll, and you'd sell it at a certain store, and you'd get yeah. your money. And, and, and by the way, for all you writers out there, that's when publishers really began screwing us. Right. They began getting an exorbitant amount of the money. The capitalists, the middleman, mm-hmm. began taking too much of the money for what we were doing right there. Right. It didn't happen yesterday. No. Okay. Time Warner didn't invent this. No. Uh, Sony and BMG didn't invent this. This predates them. But then radio came. Okay, radio was run by people that weren't publishers. And now they were making recordings on your gramophone, or your grammy people out there, and they were, they were able to take that, and because of electronics in the electronic era, the era we're in now, the information age, they were able to play it over the air. And the publishers said, you guys are ripping us off. You're playing it for free. We don't get any money out of that. They had a big rumble, and they figured out a thing called the blanket license. And in the blanket license, it meant you can have your radio station, we'll give you a blanket license to play all the music in our catalog, uh, which gave rise to the performing rights organizations, who then became the people collecting the money for all the catalogs, uh, and you pay a uniform price. And the the way we got screwed by the performing rights organizations, and have been for a long time, is they use what's called sampling. You know, in the old yeah. days they'd get somebody to listen to the radio.
1: And they'd actually log it and you know
0: write down songs. And now according to the FCC, every radio station's always been liable if they didn't log it all themselves. But right. somewhere in all of this handwriting things got really screwy. Sure. Once I said to Francis Preston, this was back in the nineties in a meeting at BMI, Francis, how come we don't put a computer in every radio station and at the end yeah. of the night they just enter it all and it goes into the mainframe, we get an exact accounting. She said it'd be too expensive. I said, Francis, you have been to Radio Shack lately? It's a, you don't have to buy an Apple, yeah. Yeah, Macintosh. You could buy one of these. Yeah. It's just—it's a Mizdos thing. It's not even yeah. so. But she said,
1: "No, no, no, no." I love how you make Mizdos sound like a Yiddish word. Yeah, it's Mizdos. It's a Mizdos
0: <laughs> <It's a Mizdas. laughs> <a Mizdas> thing. <laughs> it's the most Jewish thing. Right? Has ever right? Been. Yeah, I
2: love and it. And it should be. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's like matzah, right? <laughs> yeah. So, all the time, the people who are collecting our money, to capitalists. Are trying not to pay us. Yeah, they came up in the 90s of the control composition clause, which right. meant if you own the copyright, we'll pay you three quarters of the statutory rate, right. because it's unfair for you to
1: own that's, the copyright. That started in the 90s. Yeah, I didn't realize that's that. When I the con- that was earlier. No, that's thought... when the control
0: composition first showed up. And we okay. went, "Are you nuts? Yeah. You're saying because I own the copyright, you get to pay me less, yeah. but if I didn't own the copyright, you'd pay me the full rate, it, it, which means we get nothing." Yeah. Okay, so the shuck and jive. Yeah. The create Hollywood Creative Accounting... Hey, don't sully the great term, shut the <laughs> Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. I shouldn't.
1: <laughs> Use the real legal language. Yet. Right. The theft. <laughs> yeah. The
0: theft has been on for a long time. Uh, now we hit... The, the internet was one thing, because that was like the, the misdas. Hmm. It, was, uh, it was only chat rooms and bulletin boards and news groups. Sure, yeah. Okay, so it didn't really carry our work. No. The World Wide Web which is only 20 years old folks 20 years this year okay of the web the web allowed with the gui the graphic user interface and with uh the adobe software that was made flash and uh shockwave uh, and all you were able to take an mp3 a dumbed down piece of music turn digital put it onto a website load it up and someone could retrieve it off of the website and either download it or just stream it and play it that's when the modern shenanigans began this is what has everybody in an uproar now okay because the the rule of thumb has been for at least the last 15 years that the children are stealing the files the file sharing is where the theft is beginning we're not getting paid and then the the telecoms okay there's now there's groups now we get to the game of thrones you've got to know your kingdoms in this Okay,
1: (laughs) break it down. Break it down. Okay, there are
0: several kingdoms, and they don't necessarily uh, get along with each other, which is a good thing. First kingdom we're concerned with. The first two are the creators, and the and the consumers. The consumers are always the same. They they consume everything, Uh, and as McLuhan said, all the eras of communication are not. They never get. You never get rid of them. They're subsumed and made part of the latest era. The electronic era, which we're in now, uh, which is causing everyone so much trouble. The electronic era includes everything. The written word, the manuscript, language, sight, sound, video, film, TV, music, every kind of communication that came before it is in it. So I hear a lot of songwriters say I don't want to be called a content creator. But this, this does not allow you to make allies out of the people who are like you. Who create all of these other things in sight and sound, right. and those are our allies, the creators. Okay, we're the number one people. We are the content providers. You take the internet and take us out, and what do you got? Bobkus. Uh,
1: <laughs> a, a, a website dedicated to knitting. Yeah. No, you got <laughs> nada. Yeah, yeah you've you got nada. Because you can't see it, you can't hear it. You, yeah.
0: You got zero. Uh, you got zilch. We create. But what, I like knitting. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, without us, there's nothing. The whole thing depends on us, on one end, and on the other end, the consumer who likes what we are doing. Yeah, These guys in the middle divide into certain groups. One's the telecoms. Okay, The telecoms uh, are generally the people, the, your internet service provider. However you're connected to the internet, listening to this podcast right now, yeah. you're connected to the internet, sure. and you're paying for it. So even if you send it to someone else they're also paying for their connection. Sure. So money is being made even if you say oh he illegally shared his podcast. Yeah. No. The trouble is how we collect money on the content from the consumers is hasn't been let's say the theft is bigger than it's ever been. All the money is still coming from the consumers. They pay through the nose. For these internet service uh, providers, the ISPs, folks, it's an ISP, because the ISPs have monopolies in most jurisdictions. Yeah, very much so. Okay? Cable has a monopoly in whatever town you're in. Yeah. In California, just uh, maybe six years ago, they passed a law where juris- local jurisdictions couldn't decide whether or not a utility uh, or I mean, an internet service provider could have the monopoly in their jurisdiction. It all was taken to the state board the Public Utilities Commission Mm. because AT&T wanted it that way because AT&T thought it would be better. That way they could just decide what happens all over the state. Actually, like everything else these guys in the middle have done, this is going to work for us in the end. But we have to be smart about how we attack the problem uh, and how we negotiate the solution. So the content is going out over the internet in all its various forms. The consumers are consuming it. But the telecoms are getting paid handsomely, the, soft, the well, software companies, the internet companies are getting paid handsomely, Google, etc, because they're running advertising just like the old radio no or
3: different. newspapers
0: or TV. It's no different. Their, their money model is advertising. Yeah. We don't get nothing from that. We don't get nothing from the payment to be on the internet from the service provider. Those are the two largest amounts of money involved with the internet. We get zero. The other group that is against them are the hardware manufacturers. Apple and Samsung and those guys are opposed to both those other groups. All of three of those groups are fighting to monopolize the middle. That is the connection between the consumer and the creator. And all three groups are trying to deny us any part of the money. Now, that's insanity. Okay. there is there. We provide the value. Like, someone scoffed at me to me the other day, and I said, actually, and they did it online, too. I said, the value of Facebook is whoever blogs and comments.
1: Yeah.
0: Posts and comments are the only value of Facebook. Yeah. There is no other value.
1: If there's none of that, there's nothing.
0: So I say, let's form, here's how I suggest we approach this negotiation. We form our own allies in this Game of Thrones. And I suggest they are not always who we think they are. Yeah.
1: And this you touched on this the other night, I yes. thought it was spectacular. Yes.
0: So yeah. first it's all creators. Yeah. Bloggers, I was I was really a big time blogger. Mm. And so much so that in the two thousand eight Democratic Convention in Denver, I had the top byline every day of the week. Because I was writing these posts and I was just going totally poetic, totally atmosphere. I mean I was just it was an amazing convention. It was insane. Yeah. But I realized I was working for Ariana Huffington for free.
2: Yeah.
0: I was almost like an intern. Yeah. I was creating the, the value that she sold for $300 million. I didn't get a penny. I stopped writing for her. I said, oh, hell with that. Now I'm actually writing for Mark Zuckerberg or whoever owns Twitter. Because I'm oh, big. have Facebook. Uh, yeah. Well, both. Zuckerberg oh, yeah. on Facebook and whoever yeah. owns Twitter. Because I'm big on both. Yeah. I got almost 1,000 people on LinkedIn. Right. I have thousands and thousands of people following me. Okay, personally in this base of mine yeah. that I'm saying, so I'm thinking these people like me on these social networks, they're content creators too,
3: right.
0: and they should be paid too. Right. They should be paid by not just how many posts or comments they put up, but how many people read them. Right. Okay. So you have the content creators or bloggers, even microblogging, regular blogging, you have writers. Yeah. I also write books. Sure. And I've got books on the internet. So the book writers and all the writers, people writing articles, everybody writes anything. Then you have all the musicians, anybody who makes music at all, that is either streamable or downloadable. Then you have everybody who makes visual images. And those can be photographs, they can be film, they can be TV, they can be any of those things. Okay. So we're, we're, we should be a coalition of content creators because we all have the same interest we make everything that makes the internet of value right we should actually make most of the money now we shouldn't make all of the money but we should make most of it we're arguing over whether we're going to make three cents or one cent or nine cents okay we should be making 49 cents out of a dollar we should be making the majority of the money so there's some groups we have to get on our side neris is broken up into two groups one of them is the producers and engineers wing i belong to that because of how, the, how does
1: one become a member of that, by the way? I'm a producer, I'm an engineer. You just
0: have to have a certain number of credits.
1: I got a billion credits. And then you apply. Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: Credits and you apply. The thing that screwed everything up, which I kind of heard at the meeting you and I went to, is the DJs are part of the producer and engineer's wing. The EDM DJs right now think they're a standalone unit because most of what they do only happens live at a venue. Right. they don't generally sell a lot of records or if they produce a record it becomes in a single which belongs to our group Right. so they're in this kind of quasi middle thing I suggest they're an ally
1: they're absolutely an ally and <laughs> as they age and they understand what this really is right. Right. because I'll tell you something and you don't know this about me I come from that world but before I was in that world right. I made records for 15 years and I, and I refer to records yeah. affectionately as saying I worked with you know I, I worked on records that were you know just records studio engineer, producer, 15 musician whatever So the more guys I know in that world that have fine success and the more I speak to them about things like it's funny uh, in that way I feel like I'm an ambassador between two worlds absolutely. and I should actually be in the producer and engineers wing absolutely I'm in because it. those guys when you speak to them, and you find out that they're actually really music fans, and they mm. appreciate the history of things. They come around, and and they don't look at things in this adversarial like you know I just do this at a live. End they're not our it. adversaries. They no, get, they get points.
0: Out of out of every hundred points, they get points, right? Sure, of course. The old days, producer would get one point, and somebody you get three, and if you're yeah, a big yeah. deal, you got six. Yeah. Okay, you get points. I get points. Everybody who creates gets points. Yeah. So we should first off. That's the first thing. Yeah. To me, first step is we get all those allies together. Yeah. Okay, the next step is we get our next natural constituency allies together, and that's a consumer. Right. We need to get the consumers on our side of this argument, Right. okay? And the way we get them on it is saying, you're paying too much for my music. Yeah. And they'll go, yeah, but I'm getting your music for free. we we'll go, no, you're not. Yeah. How much was your cable bill? Yeah. How much was your Wi-Fi bill? How much was your... Uh, dial up a bill how much was your your data plan on your phone exactly
1: everything yeah
0: how much was your bill
1: no one shines the light on that
0: at all because that's where the money is yeah that's where the payment is to us yeah it's all going to these other guys so we form our coalition over here like on the on the left we form our coalition on the right we join up with the consumers Mm -hmm. and we we convince them they're paying too much because there's no competition no. They don't have a competitive atmosphere because there's no common carriage law. Right. Okay, before the FCC right now is the possibility given by a very high-ranking court to redefine the Internet as a telecommunications service, right. which immediately brings it under the common carriage law. Yeah. Now, for folks who don't know what that is, it was the law that broke up Standard Oil's monopoly on the railroads oh. over 100 years ago what the other oil companies, the Those other are nice people. yeah the other very oil nice barons people. were saying that John D Rockefeller who was a very astute fellow who went around and bought up every railroad in America, he had a monopoly you couldn't ship your oil over his rail lines because he wouldn't let you. So the Supreme Court in a uh, so we have to use uh, precedent. we have to use legal precedent now we're into the political battle okay we have our we have our so allies we, right. Now we're into the political battle. the political battle is a little bit different than finding out who your allies are. All the creators and all the consumers are allies. Mm-hmm. We all want to get. We want to get paid the majority of the money that these people pay for content, and they want to get the lowest price for the best content. Right. So we ha- we have a natural affinity toward each other. We're the family in the middle of the capitalists. We have to deal with them politically. So the Common Carriage Law was used to break up uh, the Standard Oil monopoly on the railroads. Right. It said if you own a public utility, what could be defined as a public utility, which is a railroad right of way, then you had to allow you had to be, you were then classified as a common carrier. That's why it's a common carriage, carriage law. You had to carry the freight of anybody else who could pay a reasonable rate on your line. Right. Okay, this was used then to break up at and long distance. Yeah, 15 years ago to call Ireland it was about two dollars and twenty-five cents a minute. You could get plans today for one penny, four pennies, yeah. whatever. That was made possible because the same law, the common carriage law, was used to de-monopolize the AT&T long-distance lines.
1: So, I mean, I hear that. And I think back 100 years, Standard Oil, you know, hit, you know, yeah. and, and then you fast forward, you know, 85 years. It seems like an, ineb- an, an inevitability that somehow this has to kind of go through. Well... You it's know. it's
0: it's a it's a battle though okay right politics it, is a, not an inevitability politics is a, is a struggle it's I i wouldn't call it a war it's a struggle right. okay and the struggle is the telecoms who really have the right-of-way
3: yeah.
0: as it's a public utility if you're coming through a phone line a cable line a wi-fi or a satellite you are licensed by the federal government yeah on the right-of-way into your house sure there's four ways you can get into that house with a signal right. and every one of them requires a public license right. because the airwaves and the pipes all are licensed and owned by the public. Right. We own, That's why it's called the Public Utilities, utilities. Commission. Yeah, These right. are all public utilities and the internet is the greatest of them all yeah. because all of them will be in one way or another in the internet. Right. So what we need is we need a common carriage law for all four ways. And what this will do will create true capitalism. True capitalism as advanced as a theory of producers, consumers, and the people who enable that transaction Mm. means that the product always gets better and cheaper. Not worse and more expensive. Okay? (laughs) Which is like where I got a thousand channels on cable. I don't watch any of them. But I'm paying for them. But who's not getting paid? The people who made them. And if... If you, if you do a song or you make a pilot for any of those cable channels, they're getting money, but how much are you getting of it? Uh, well, nothing it, or next to nothing. Yeah. Okay, so the figures, percentages are wrong. Right. And what we need is we need a regulated environment that's not monopoly oriented, so that anybody can come over any of those four pipes. Right. But now, okay, they, now we're getting down to politics. To break up the monopoly of cable—that's the first one. They—they they own most of the most of the internet service providers in America are cable. That's where most of the yeah, action absolutely. is. Okay, yeah. uh, and for those guys, they all have monopolies, but they have a bigger problem. Their uh, subscribers are going down. Their subscriber base is going way down. The cover of Consumer Reports last month was how to cut your cable. Yeah. Okay, there's I'm a, a really there's insane. a revolt against these guys because yeah. they charged more for less. Yeah, I mean you're supposed to charge less for more. more. Yeah, they they're violating the rules of capitalism because they're not capitalists. They're thieves, yeah. they're crooks,
1: it's, and they're horse thieves.
0: Well, seems. they are because Wall Street's turned into a bunch of thieves. They're not doing honest business. They're just crooks. They're criminals, yeah. and they just got away with the biggest heist ever. This real estate scam they did in the early aughts, yeah. you know, crashed in 2008. None of them have been prosecuted. That's not good. You need to throw people in jail for crookery. So, to break them up, here's the deal we ought to make them. This is politics. You say to the cable companies, your subscriber base is off the cliff, dudes. You guys are going to be making nothing pretty soon. You need to learn the lesson AT&T did. When AT&T was broken up through the Common Carriage Law, they started making more money. Because you can make more money leasing your pipe than you can owning it and, yeah. and being in charge of the content, right. so you guys need to you need to turn over the pipe and let anybody run their stuff over your your pipe at a reasonable rate. Then we'd get all a cart cable, we'd get lower. I mean, right now you could get a hundred megabytes per second on any computer in America for about a tenth of what you're paying, right. if you had a true competition. Sure, higher quality, lower price. Right. Always higher quality, lower price. And of that lower price, the creators get the majority. Right. So right now. The creators get 10% of the money generated by the content. And the, the creeps in the middle, who don't know how to do a damn thing right, who are completely choking the system, get 90. We need to flip that. We need to get 90% of the money, give them 10. That way, if if the product was worth a dollar, and they got 90 cents, and we got 10 cents, okay. if the product is worth 50 cents, and we get 10 cents... And they get 40 cents. The people, no, no, the other way around. I'm sorry, I'll get my example right <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. It, even if the product was worth, let's say, 20 cents, right? You went from a dollar to 20 cents, but we got 90% of it. Mm-hmm. We're now getting 18 cents, right? And they're getting two, right? The squeeze has to be put on them. The guy in the middle has to make less mm-hmm. because.
1: Even if they made less. It's one of the rare examples where the middle should make less. If you're, because, you're, if, it, it,
0: because then they'll make more. Right.
1: See, that's the irony of this they don't thing. look, But it's not looked at that way. They'll please, make please, more, but making less. Please, mm. you know, in some...
0: One more ally before we go to that question, please. Okay.
1: No, I, you might be leading to what I was going to ask. Google.
0: Google is our natural ally.
1: Please explain that.
0: Okay. A
1: lot of the people,
0: other than the telecoms, are our natural ally to break up the telecoms. And then after we've broken them up, we can use the broken up telecoms to put the squeeze on Google and the other guys.
1: Sure, because if it's fractured, then... Well,
0: we asked for... Look, the Congress wants to come up with uh, one overall idea. they are simpletons up there in Washington. Yeah. And I don't care who's in charge of the copyright office. They want to think simply. Yeah. They want it to be like the Constitution. In two pages, they want to solve a thousand-page problem. Right. Okay? The, and the, for them, then they has to have an overall solution. So in the overall solution, you can make... Look, Google makes money off the advertising. We should get a piece of that. We should get the majority of it because we create the content. Right. Facebook, same thing. Twitter, same thing. All the sites. Those are the website companies because that's what Google is. It's never one of the website companies. All the telecom providers, the internet service providers. We should get the majority of that because we create the content where they make their money. These people can still be the middlemen, right. the capitalists, but they should make the smallest percentage. Because then, if the creators are making more and the consumers are paying less, the whole thing is going to take off. The reason we had a huge music business is because you buy an album for three bucks.
1: Yeah.
0: You could go see a concert for ten.
1: Yeah. Okay. Not two hundred and fifty.
0: Well, no. even in the scale of those days, that yeah. was still affordable. Yeah. You Very know, much. So. Make it affordable. More people are in it. These guys are making more money, so more people want to be these guys. Right. More people want to make quality stuff, and that's how you solve this problem. It's understanding first the overview of the era that we're in, mm. who are your true allies, and how do you pull off a political victory? Mm. You need to understand all those things or you'll just be emotional.
1: So to show, to <clears throat> explain to me, or explain for people listening, the example of how you use Disney.
0: Uh... Oh, when we were doing Life Plus 70, which was the the uh, Berne convention, uh, had extended copyright to Life Plus 70 for every country in the world except the United States. Right. We refused to sign on to this treaty. Uh, it was either a GATT or a Geneva treaty, and which meant that an author owned their creative work, any creative work, what they call intellectual property, which still mystifies me. It's like if I make a chair, your family can own it for a thousand years, but if I make a song, yeah. yep, seventy years, you're you're done. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's all for you. Yeah. I never have understood that, yeah. but let's go with it for a while. Right. So it's life. It, it used to be for America, life plus fifty. We 50 years after your death, your family could still own the rights to your material. We wanted to extend it to Life Plus 70. The people leading the charge were the Gershwin family and the Berlin family. Sure. Okay, out of New York.
1: They have a lot at stake.
0: They had a lot at stake. Okay, so they were allied with all of us to get Life Plus 70. When the major publishers, who were by that time beginning to be owned by the major corporations, who were also... The movie makers. There's this vertical integration that we have complete now. Had just begun. They were opposed to that. But they could see that the writing on the wall. We were going to get life plus 70. Because the rest of the world had it. But what they want to do is extend what they call the reversion clause. The reversion clause means. And this is very important to anyone who writes any kind of contract in Hollywood. If you give your creative rights away. Okay. uh, Even as a work for hire. In any weigh it all, you give the copyright away as part of your contract to do work, in 35 years you can get it back. That's called the reversion clause. It reverts to you in 35 years. They said, we'll give you the 70 if you extend the reversion to 55. Interesting. They wanted 20 more years on that. They said, that's fair. But the National Academy of Songwriters, I was the vice president at the time, and the National Songwriters Association, uh, which I was also a member of, said no. Because if their version clause is longer than thirty-five, I'll never see that in my lifetime. Right. Okay? I'll never get that stuff back and by, and I'll be dead when it's time is up and my kids won't know and this'll never, you know, no, this is completely un We had big fights. We were I was flying in New York and Nashville and LA. we were all going back and forth in meetings, going to DC and testifying. And then finally it occurred to us, and I don't remember who came up with it, I don't even know if it was me, I don't know who what came up with it. It was how old is Mickey Mouse? Mickey Mouse was about to go out of copyright. And so it was like, Disney needs Disney needs a slight plus safety as much as we do. Yeah. See, and this is what I'm talking about. All content creators are allies. Right. We're all in the same boat. If the corporation owns part of it, they're going to try and say they're not. But the truth is, they are. you got to simplify these things in your own mind and not buy what you're told. Exactly. So we went to Disney and said, well, I'll tell you what. If you don't get behind no reversion clause, I guess we're not going to get light plus 70 and there goes Mickey. Yeah. There you go. And I'd already been to Hong Kong. Yeah. I saw how hard they were knocking off that little mouse over in Asia. Oh yeah. And Disney had a whole army of Mickey Mouse police in Asia yeah. <clears throat> going through all the markets, and scooping up the illegal goods. Yeah. They got it. <clears throat> all of a sudden they were on our side. Right. And that's how you have to work this thing. That's a kind of a Game of Thrones political but we-
1: reality. But okay, and you said you just said something a minute ago that made it made me think of the the thought that some of these some of these you know massive cable companies are also buying massive networks and they're bu- they're buying the content uh, that they very much need to end up protecting that's themselves. That's their that's their so key the seal. The, the, so well, right. So what what is it? uh? NBC Universal and mm-hmm. you know Comcast and you know all these Comcast companies. bought all of that right yeah. Sony is completely integrated they got yeah they got everything. everything going on they've all and they've always... actually it's funny they've always been that way even when they were just making electronics or just, you know they've right. always you know Yamaha and Sony have always been like we have a record company we have a movie company we, you know we make lawnmowers we do everything you Here's know the, it's always yeah. been the, the Japanese way to integrate everything but um so how do I guess the ultimate thing is, and you just said how you did this with Disney how do you make a company like Comcast, NBC? Pretty soon it's going to be like the movie "Idiocracy," where it's going to be McDonald's, Comcast Universal, uh, Sony BNG, uh, you know, everything, Google. You know how do you let them know that they're, where's their Achille, Achilles heel and, and appeal to their? You have to
0: greed. use <clears throat> You have to use progressive economics. No. This is the hard part for most people who do what we do for a living.
1: Well, because we're not in that. We, What we do for a living is, uh-huh. you know. The, we're you know. not very scientific. Uh, well, I'd argue that in one way. Try we, learning all the software I have to use. Okay, and well, Making it all speak. I, I wish I could use those skills in another way, but, you know. You're these- also
0: scientific in learning how to play an instrument. Yeah. Pattern recognition. So. Pattern recognition is a huge part of what we do. Yeah. Well, we need to recognize the patterns in this financial transaction.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's brilliant. I, lo- I love that but That you just said that. Yeah.
0: Progressive economics versus uh, rational economics. Yeah. Rational economics and classical economics are the <clears throat> two forms of economics that have ruled the day up to today, which is why everything's screwed up. Right. Because they both say people will not do something that is against the good of everyone. Right. That's rational. It's, it's irrational to want to ruin the system. No, it isn't if you think yeah, you could steal the system yeah. and run off to, I don't know, the Cayman Islands yeah. or the Isle of Man yeah. or Hong Kong with your money. Yeah. And
1: that's not the Isle of Barryman. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And,
0: and in <laughs> Hong Kong, you could build a, a $220 million apartment building, you know, that rents for $10,000 a square yeah. foot. No, you don't think it. You, you're, you know people are going to rip each other off. Yeah. Progressive economics is the opposite of that. Rational and classical economics are a failure. We are living in the midst of their grand failure. Second time around. Yeah. Okay, we've had enough. We need progressive economics. Progressive economics is the scientific proof that if the marketplace works mostly on behalf of the creator and the consumer and the capitalist makes a small percentage based on a truly regulated and open and fair market, that more money, now here's the important part, more money will be made by everyone. Now, let me ex- repeat the conclusion here. We, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> John Nash, who the movie A Brilliant Mind was made about, yeah. his study was game theory. Game of Thrones, game theory. Yeah. Okay, Because it is a game. And the idea of a game is how to win. Classical Economics and Rational says there is a zero-sum game. And there was everything plays to a winner and a loser. John Nash got the Nobel Prize, even though he was a paranoid schizophrenic because he recognized that a win-win game was more profitable than a win-lose, right? So this fits with what Martin Luther King was talking about. This is where my politics and my economics and my creative mind all come together. The win-win is the future because in the win-win everyone wins. Mm. But the past has this absurd idea that there must be a loser. The Super Bowl must have a loser. The World Series demands a loser. Right. So we keep thinking, you our, gotta our, lose.
1: Culturally, our culture demands a loser in a lot of
0: ways. Because a certain group a certain group of intellectuals posited a theory, a scientific theory. For anyone who's watching Cosmos right now, you know science is very important. Yeah. But science can be perverted. Okay, and the perversion of economics to the scientific theory of economics is that if there's winners and losers, it'll be a healthier system. But John Nash proved that wrong. The first people to take John Nash's theory of the win-win, which can be proven scientifically, Mm. were diplomats. What you see in the Middle East, what you see going on the Ukrainian border right now, what you see in every political situation in the world right now, as long as Mr. Bush or one of the Bush family is not running the show, is the idea of a win-win. The win-win says we all win. Not... I win, you lose. Right. When you bring that to business in game theory, then everybody's got to win. Right. So if I say to Google, let's say you're making a dollar right now. If I show you how to make a dollar ten, would you be interested? Yeah. What are they going to say? No, I don't want to make a dollar ten. I'm happy making a yeah. dollar. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to show you how to make a dollar ten by taking less money for everything you do. Does that seem impossible? Because I'll prove with the mathematics, yeah. the progressive economics, that it's possible. Right. I will prove that the consumer paying less will get them a better product. Right. I will prove that paying creators more will make you more money. Right. That the consumer paying less will make you more money. Right. That not being a monopoly will make you more money. Right. I will prove that the win-win will make the rich richer, the right. poor non-existent, and the middle class the triumphant rulers of the economic picture.
3: Right.
0: That's progressive yeah. economics. You have to show people a way out. If you want to win a war you got and the other t- side is losing, you have to give them a door to exit the battlefield. Right, right. 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 This yeah, idea sure. that we are going to do a win-lose with the telecoms or the software companies or Silicon Valley or any of these other competitors in the marketplace that we're in, Given the fact that we're the only people that know how to make anything, like I told that guy once, mm-hmm. I could do your job and mine. What job do you do?
1: Yeah.
0: You don't know how to do nothing. Mm-hmm. That was very confrontational.
1: Yeah.
0: That was not you, smart. You didn't
1: exactly show him a way to enter no. the battle. No, no, no. no. I, he
0: showed me the door. <laughs> he,
1: sat, he showed you the way to enter. Right, exactly. Yeah.
0: So what we need, and you only you learn these things by experience.
1: Sure.
0: We need a way to show these people how they can do better by doing the right thing. And that's a complicated thing, because if you want revenge, if you're over here saying I've been screwed on all these songs I did for all these years, yeah. and I want revenge against the producers, against the T V show people, well, yeah, against yeah. all these other people, then you're setting yourself up you're yeah. setting yourself up to never be satisfied. No. What is it you really want? Yeah. If I make ten thousand dollars as a like there's a guy out there now, a smart guy, Bob mm-hmm. left sets and he and and he says that the long tail is a myth that only the big people are going to survive and everyone else will be crushed and so i wrote to him and i said dude that's such old thinking how could such a smart guy like you be sucked up into that and he says but only the big people matter and i was like that is so wrong at any local bar in any town i want to take you to a trip to ireland I want to show you people that can sing their ass off and write songs and play instruments. And they're making, you know, just barely enough to be part of the lower middle class. Mm. And they're an asset to their town. And they're happy. If they could make just a little bit more, they'd be like princes and princesses. Kings and queens.
1: That brings me to a thought about if they could make just a little bit more. Trying to explain to companies that own everything Uh that they could make... You know, it always makes me think of The the Simpsons, the the character Mr. Burns on The Simpsons is so spectacular. There's a line he throws where he says he's the richest man in the world and he'd give it all up for just a little bit more. And it's just like, I, I, I think that, you know, what you're saying is incredible, but it's getting to the point where you cure the people like i lived in i lived in tribeca for the last couple of years i lived in new york yeah and i was surrounded by guys that were tech guys that 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 worked in one guy worked in sort of high frequency trading hft which is oh yeah which is a huge. you know michael lewis has his book out now yeah but i mean i knew about this at the time and it was like you know everyone's always trying you know it, it, everyone's always trying to find an edge but when that Group of people, and I'm trying to figure out a way to connect this because I'm. It's not really a deep thought. It's just that trying to appeal to somebody's higher nature, greed, and higher nature seems. And and I could be totally wrong. My father used to say, "Hey man, this business was great when mobsters ran it, because I My, could just go to a guy and say hey yeah. I found a singer. All right, yeah. record her. Let's see what it sounds like.' I agree. You know, it, it's it's hard when people that uh, have masters in economics are are running something and their bottom line is 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 just their bottom line like the you know we could write an incredible song but they're not going to be like Lester Sill ever and say like I just want to make it so you can do this more you you're know.
0: absolutely right. I'll tell you what it is. I think I totally understand. I mean, what you're saying. I'm not saying. trying to
1: push back. I think you're a billion percent right. I just, you no, know, I'm I want to be hear what in the saying. room when you get four or five of those guys that you have to try to.
0: The uh, the negotiator for Neris, for the Grammy people in D.C. I had a talk with him. He said, "You'll never convince the record guys of this. Mm. You'll never convince me. I said, "Set me up with a meeting." Yeah. He well, said, "He said, thing. when are you going to come to D.C.?" I said, "They're all in L.A." Yeah. Set me up with a meeting. Yeah. He never set me up with a meeting. Right. I don't know whether he was scared or he thought it wouldn't happen, but here's how it happens. I think we first have to accept some certain things about human beings, and the first thing is self-interest. <laughs> yeah. You're either narrowly self-interested or you're enlightened self-interest. Right. But no one ever is not self-interested. No, We're always self-interested. We're programmed that way. We've got two million years of existence that brought us out of the trees.
1: Wait, we're not 5,000 years old? Well, some of us. <laughs> there are those. Yes, sorry, sorry. But, but yeah, you, it's, it's cold. It, it's in so you
0: cold. So you have to ask yourself, and this is what John Nash was talking about yeah. in the win-win. Mm. My narrow self-interest tells me I need all the money in this room today. I need your house. I need you to move out. I need you to leave. Sorry, okay? It's not going
1: to happen, but yes, John Because
0: your narrow self-interest tells is, me I need my right? house. <laughs> Our enlightened self-interest says you get to have your house and I get to have mine. How do we figure out where we can both have a house? Right. Not whether there's only one house yeah. and one of us gets it and the other one doesn't. Yeah. Okay, so it's both self-interest. Yeah. And I think that's how we have to approach this. Yeah. We can't deny that everyone has that. self-interest yeah, in this. You,
1: you spo- I mean, you spoke totally clearly to that. You're right. It, it's yeah. All right.
0: We just have to redirect people into the enlightened self-interest. Mm. So I I don't want to tell a billionaire you can't have a yacht... Bigger than Larry Ellison's because for some reason you need 10 more feet of a yacht, or this guy's got a building, he wants to make it 100 feet higher than the building next to it. I think that's your prerogative if you can sell that. Right. Okay. But what I want to tell you is you're going to pay an amazing amount of taxes.
3: Yeah.
0: Because the amount of resources that you have got under your control Mm -hmm. demands that you pay a lot of taxes. A lot of taxes. Mm -hmm. Now, if you got 20 billion, you may end up with 10, yeah. still a billionaire. Yeah. You got 100 million, you'll end up with 50, still a multi-millionaire.
3: Yeah.
0: As you as you ratchet down, you get getting your, somebody's got like a million or 2 million, you'll have 100, 150 grand less, yeah. okay? You'll still be a millionaire. Right. But what happens when we take it, a country must have high taxes, yeah. robust public services, yeah. complete regulation of all markets, mm-hmm. and absolutely free education, and environmental awareness, or cannot wow, succeed, and no we're, military.
1: We're doing so well <laughs> from we, we, that on that, Well, so I mean, okay, look where we from are. from the options. we got 3,000 tanks sitting and you know, From the, the optimal model, we're not, we're
0: not, we're not yeah. so good, right? We're parking tanks in the desert along yeah. with the planes, right? Yeah. Okay, because nobody has shown those guys that if instead of spending 600, you know, billion dollars, Building these planes and tanks that we'll never be able to use again because we live in the era of the nuclear weapon. Yeah, the reason Iran is so frantic to get a nuclear weapon because they know they how, no matter how crazy the North Koreans get, nobody invades because they got a weapon. Yeah. The, the Iranians are completely surrounded by us. We're on every side of We got an island off of their country, in Diego Garcia, yeah. and we're just sitting there. We're like, we're, and they're thinking these guys are ready to go. They're going to nuke us. They're going to nuke us. Yeah. No. Message to all of the Iranians, the Ayatollah included we're never going to invade you. We're never going to nuke you because that's the absolute zero-sum game yeah. in which there are no winners or all losers so now that we're there we don't need all this stuff so even if we t- if we've if we took 300 billion out of the military budget and we put it into rebuilding bridges and a better highway system high speed rail light rail mass transit everywhere yeah, yeah, yeah. solar systems on every roof of every building in america i mean you could see you could still have heavy industry
1: but it, it need have the industry just to create that.
0: It's enlightened. Yeah. It's enlightened self-interest. It's not narrow self-interest. Well, and
1: it's weird, to, you know. Figure you move forward sixty years, and and you, you look at Germany, and they're actually following just about all of those.
0: Germany was forced to because we wouldn't allow them to have a military. Right. Same for well, Japan. Well,
1: we. Yeah. And and. We look. said we'll take that over. Yeah. <laughs> no, but they're doing a much better job than everybody
0: Everybody is because they don't have to put up with this
1: big police force right they don't have the burden of being the you know hall monitors we're
0: too militarized we're too we're too roman it's like some great roman anarchy the first chapter in my book on politics on progressive politics is the roman is the republican anarchy collective right okay which i read this something this this group once i saw online the pasadena anarchy collective and i wrote (laughs) okay that is such a contradiction in terms boy okay the anarchy collective yeah
1: and i had to think about that
0: organized anarchy yeah and i thought yeah that's perfect it's that's the ultimate game that's the ultimate three card monte the ultimate shell game we're going to organize the rest of you suckers to have anarchy but in the meanwhile we're going to be the collective controlling the anarchy and that's what the republicans are they want a big military, all the money at the top, and everyone else fend for themselves. That is right. exactly what Rome had. Yeah. That's exactly what brought Rome down. That's yeah. exactly what's bringing our country down now. Right. That's what killed the Russians. It's killing the Chinese, yeah. the Indians. Even Brazil now is having the same problem. Wow. You can't, it's, it's that old idea of the adversarial, I get a house and you don't. Okay. No, we got to get into a whole new deal here, people, because you need to go watch Cosmos and listen <laughs> to Dr. Tyson, who, yeah. tol- who tells us what Carl Sagan told us years ago,
2: yeah.
0: what Star Trek and Isaac Asimov and H.G. Yeah. Wells and many people have told us. Our mission is to leave the planet. Mm. We have to leave this planet. There is other places to live, because guess what? This place is going to be gone one day.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny. There's a little, uh, you know, in this... That's and self-preservation. It, it, it is, and it's you know, there's a strong love for on this show for George Carlin, and he always would just say, "The planet's fine. We're fine. We're fine." Yeah. So yeah, yeah. We used definitely- to say in Berkeley,
0: <laughs> yeah. "Save the planet." Uh-uh. The planet's gonna save itself. It's, it's yeah. gonna kill us. Yeah. We're the. We're the. And it started. Yeah. Forty years after we said that, the yeah. planet's fighting back.
1: Absolutely. It's
0: gonna wipe us out.
1: Yeah. We don't. Because we're bad. We are bad. So in the meantime, uh, in the meantime, let's you know, get paid for our you know, copyrights. Paid, right? for our, yeah, I and love that. I love the the thought of like, oh, but, but I'm really worried about this song I own. Twelve and a half percent of the publishing on. <laughs> no, I was fascinated. I mean, and the people listening to this, you know, we we, we met the other night at at an event where uh, a uh, good event with good people. It was a good event, and it's this thing called CMC, and it's called the Council of Music Creators, and and I and I think it's a great. It was a great thought and it was presented very well and i am not unlike yourself i am not very um i'm very politically motivated but i don't i i I think i'm young in in my thoughts about how i would go about educating or learning you know i'd much rather sit with you and You know, hear about what you've done, and then make sure. Well, if I'm going to educate anyone or attempt to educate anyone, try to do it in a responsible way. You can't just, you know. That's why I was was a little worried about going to a thing like that because I just didn't want to hear people bitching and moaning.
0: I don't think they talked about the goal.
1: uh, I don't. I don't think they could. I think that time got away from them. And it's interesting that the goal for me, I, I, I wouldn't.
0: What would your goal be in the situation songwriters find themselves in now? Which is really the genesis of our conversation, of not getting paid, right. and yet the music being used more and more and more. It,
1: and it is, I mean, it,
0: it listen, it, it you know. It's what, what, what would your goal be? What would the end game be?
1: You know, it's interesting. I I don't know enough to answer that question. I know that. I, it's funny. I, I used to have a real big beef with the 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 streaming, uh, companies and what they did to the PROs. But then I started realizing, wait a minute, and, and this might, you know, you talk about int- self-interest and the wider self-interest,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I don't know, sound exchange, as, you know, and my ability to, 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 you know, I have a label, I have a publishing company, I know that mm-hmm. they don't deal with the publishing side mm-hmm. of things, but I realized, wait a minute, I'm not seeing any money from ASCAP for my, for my streaming money but I'm seeing a very healthy amount of money from sound exchange from music that's used online, and I can't, I'm not about to turn that off to fight another, you know? It's like I was smart enough, in a way, maybe because I needed to preserve myself, but I realized I don't need a record company, I don't need a publishing company. I spoke earlier about my uncle coming back from the dead and strangling me. (laughs) Where's your publishing? Yes. Don't sell your publishing. You know, (laughs) I I saw a certain kind of writing on the wall that told me you don't need to go into major labels to do any business. You don't need to work. Like that's just my own personal experience. I built everything outside. One could say I'm not even in the music business. I mean, I'm in my own little corner still making wagon wheels and I'm sort of peeking my head out of the window, going like, wow, there's a lot of people griping. I've seen things lower, but I've done things to, to, to compensate and, you know, sort of like, hey, guys, you know, you write songs. I'm sorry. It's weird. I, I don't not defend the right of songwriters to get paid,
3: hmm.
1: but it, there's so many different things going on that I, it's almost hard for me to be angry about any of them. Yeah. There, it, to me, I've all, if I was a boxer, I would want to see what fight was being brought to me before I started to swing. Okay. I wouldn't want to n- know, like, oh, okay, lefty, all right, this is how I go in. Like, I'm reacting to what's going on and trying to, re- you know, I'm an, I'm a, I'm a, I am am ai love ASCAP. I've been an ASCAP guy for 20 years, you know, 20, 25 years almost, actually. I, I still don't under I, you know. Though they they educated me the other night about the what was it the consent clause and the, you consent, know, the consent decree. Consent decree. I knew things about these things and mm-hmm. I knew their hands were tied. But I know things change too. I I, I don't. I can't get angry about all this. I, I don't. I you know. Mm-hmm. I, I I I feel like you know the dust and you know the dominoes fall and the dust settles and you kind of see where you really are. I mean I don't feel like I'm being ripped off for some reason i i i i feel like this stuff all kind of will work <laughs> if you're making out.
0: music you are being ripped off no i
1: know that no and i and i trust me i totally admit that but i've been ripped off i've been ripped off by labels i've been ripped off by you know what i mean like i have you know tell someone it's i think you're dealing with a lot of people right now that are i don't want to say i don't want to make an exact you know they're not abused but it's like you know try being in this for you know i'm 43 and i'm 26 years in professionally and i've had every level of this business hustle me sure and i've learned from that hustle to know what i will and won't do old 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 friends you know making me offers for deals where i'm like you know dude Stalin offered Hitler a better deal when they were storming <laughs> Berlin. Are you kidding me? So it is, a, you know. I think I got that same offer. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> it's to me, I've always witnessed and tried to educate myself. I, I'm going, I mean, I understand. I'm going off on a bit of a. No, no, I think it's
0: here. all part of the same thing.
1: But it is. We are divided and conquered in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of educating of people that, you know, compose and create music there's a there's so much educating that needs to get done to even get to the ground floor because they're all competing with each other (laughs) well
0: that's the we were trained to do that yeah uh, i put a um, concert together for a friend of mine named billy block who wendy wallman and billy and i started a thing called western beat back in the early 90s here in la and it was a great singer-songwriter show and we had all kinds of artists the first performance is spinal tapped unplugged uh, oh, wow. we we had all kinds of amazing acts and we really wanted to push that and billy was uh, billy has been battling cancer and it's very serious so we did a big fundraiser for him at the musicians institute okay. that i co-produced and, the, and i introduced the night i said we were taught to compete with each other they want us competing because then we won't notice yeah. how much we're being That's, stolen from us
1: and you know what you can erase I, and I probably will. The last three minutes of my speaking, the jit like I was sitting next to uh, Shelly Pike and, and she started, and she's really t- super talented, yeah. really super. I just met her that night, and she started to say, "How do we get the younger people?" And and all every part of my body was like, "They don't give a shit. They don't know enough yet to right. even be." You know, like so you mentioned the EDM guys. Like I think to me, it's it's anyone under. 30 that hasn't had their ass handed to them 15 different times by you know, Sony or Universal or whatever, right. Right. they don't give a shit they're, they're all, their goal right now is to make vodka or, or to right. make headphones you know, it's like you know, or, or to win a contest on T V to become a star. Mm-hmm. it's so changed that it's been so I mean I'm I'm s i am i am you know, I think I'm looking at it from a perspective of like, you know, I really care about some Swedish trust fund DJ, you know, adopting and learning about this They're, they they do not give a shit. They want to buy a really big house and have a big sexy party. Like there's a there seems but to be don't, a, but a we, disconnect. But
0: we've been I totally agree. I totally agree there is a disconnect, but we don't want to be the ones who've been there short sighted or have a failure of our own imagination right. that we can't figure out how to make them one of us.
1: And, and, and I totally spoke to that earlier by saying, hey, I know some of these guys. And when I sit down and I say, hey, do you want to meet the guy that played on all the Bill Withers records? Or do you, you know, they get a sense of history. They turn and they go, oh my God. I did a songwriting session the other day with a guy who did, yeah, right? Maybe, yeah. I did a songwriting session with a guy who didn't know who Donny Hathaway was. And to turn someone... And we're trying to write a tune that, like, harkens back to a certain era, and I'm playing this certain... stuff. I'm I'm like, wait a minute. You haven't heard this guy that I'm referencing right now? And I'll fully... I will reference Donny Hathaway forever. He's a genius, but... To, to send someone to Amazon to physically buy, and I said, this is what we're going to do right now. We're going to take a break. We're going to go, we'll online. go look at it. We're going to, you're going to, you're not going to listen to it online. You're just going to go to Am- You're going to buy this, this CD. You're buying this and it'll show up and then you're going to thank me in a week, you know. But it's just, you know. So those- let, us, let us
0: assume then. Let us assume that younger people in our business uh, and even older people, people our own age, that, they're, that we're the parents and they're the children right let's not assume that they're not in our family let us assume they are in our family and let us assume that we're not bad parents <laughs> we're not competing with them that uh, we are one with them right. and let us hope that they succeed and that they make a lot of money and let us teach them then a very important lesson your window of making that money will close yep. and you will have a lot of life to live So how America continues with its program, how the world continues together, how the music business continues is very important to you for the rest of your life. You can have a party now and go ahead, party on. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, or EDM, however you prefer to do it. But you are part of this. And I have your interest in mine. We have your interest in mine. And so, just give us a second to listen. Right. It's the same thing for the major corporations. They're just people. They're not like some magical corporations character. they are people.
3: Well, <laughs> yeah, they're, made,
0: they're made of people. Yes. The corporation itself is not like out of the twilight zone, a computer yeah. in a cave. Yeah. They're made of real human beings. And these human beings either have to be made to understand or they have to be bargained to understand. Right. And that's politics.
1: Yeah, that is. that goes right back to what you were saying.
0: There's more of us than there are of them. And what they count on is the fact that they keep us fighting with each other. Yeah. While so, they
1: do what they do. That they they, don't they're,
0: they're doing the worst part of human nature. Right. They're destroying the planet. They're plundering uh, all the resources. They're stealing everybody's money. They're murdering people. They're doing all the bad things people do. Right. It's not just happening in South Sudan, or Central African Republic, right. or Syria, or some other exotic place, or Mexico. It's the whole world, and it's in so many ways, mm. and we're a part of that. Right. We want to see if we can make everybody either accept the fact that they're part of the one-world family or understand that the one-world family is going to control the negotiation.
3: Right. Fair enough.
0: We don't want to eliminate anyone. We want to make their participation healthy for the rest of us.
1: Mm. <laughs> who I am
0: (laughs) hey Adam thank you
2: thanks man Brad Parker